Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. It's part of a special series brought to you in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, which is a group of businesses in tech, biotech and other sectors, academic institutions and non-profits, all committed to improving the health and the wellness of people around the world. Well, in this episode, we are going to meet Professor Heidi Larson. Now, she is the Professor of Anthropology, Risk and Decision Science at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. What a title. To my mind, she is a 21st century Renaissance person. She's an anthropologist, she's a writer, and she's a photographer. So, Professor Heidi Larson, it's an absolute honour to have you on the show. Welcome. Great to be here. Heidi, I think of you really as a modern-day Renaissance woman, a scientist that covers all manner of, uh, of disciplines in the behavioural um, and medical sciences. Could you tell us a bit about your upbringing? You're an anthropologist, a professional photographer, a writer. How did all this come together? Well, it sort of happened, but I, um, I think I always followed my passion. And my father was a photographer and filmmaker and priest, and he uh, taught and he was very active in civil rights movement and did his congregational gathering on Sundays. And I think uh, my mother was a German professor. Um, but she also had a, a life and a heart outside of that. So I had quite an eclectic group of influences. Um, and I, it always, I think the activist in my father kind of was a bug in me my whole life. Um, and the whole notion of movements, social movements. Um, I always loved art, but actually, interestingly, in school, I was really, uh, unlike my household influences, I was really had a passion for, for science. Yeah. You, um, you did a book with UNICEF after the tsunami in um, Southeast Asia, following the lives of people before and afterwards. And, and I guess you played the primary photographic role in that. Um, how did you see that images could help tell a story perhaps more um, effectively, let's say, than perhaps some of the more uh, journal-oriented um, uh, descriptions? Well, I always loved photography, but in, I also saw that it was a really val valuable uh, research method. So I kind of trained both in, in anthropology and in social sciences and and heart and biological medical sciences also. But I started using photography a lot uh, in its own right to tell stories. But I saw that a lot of anthropologists and social sciences were, would always use photographs just to, as an illustration and not really caring about the aesthetic. And I thought it could be a much more compelling uh, approach to actually have a beautiful photograph that captures kind of decisive moments and yet really contribute something different than just repeating what's already in the text. So I've always had that thread along 
and also having the children's voices in there in that particular book. Yeah. Well, coming on now to to 2020, you are and I love this title, the Professor of Anthropolo Anthropology, Risk and Decision, Decision Science at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. You're the director of the Vaccine Confidence Project. Um, you're attached to the Institute of Health Metrics and a professor in the Department of Global Health at uh, the University of Washington. What an extraordinary group of uh, titles and so it begs the question, what do you do? Well, I bring it all together, I think, in the Vaccine Confidence Project because it's, it's a highly diverse uh, group. I've got mathematical modelers, psychologists, epidemiologists, uh, digital uh, media analysts, anthropology. Um, and what I love in this research group that I've built over 10 years is we're, we're coming together around a problem. And you know, and the problem is uh, the challenges to vaccines these days. I was partly inspired by it because of AIDS, because I I've, hadn't seen any other health issue in all my years working overseas and on global health issues, uh, a, a health issue that mobilized everything, everybody from minors to artists to you name it, uh, people, everybody was engaged. And it's the biggest thing I felt has been missing in the whole vaccine area is this kind of multi-sectoral, multi-engagement, multidisciplinary approach. So that's what we've built. And I always love being challenged with questions from people from a different discipline. And it's really helped give us insights. You know, it's funny that it should be HIV and the AIDS vaccine that sort of sparks that interest because I guess ever since we started having AIDS vaccine research, I suppose in the late 80s, I, I, every year we are 10 years away from an AIDS vaccine. Yeah. Uh, at every major AIDS conference, and we've just had the uh, Internet, AIDS uh, 2020 in the Bay Area virtually. Yet again, 10 years away from uh, a, an AIDS vaccine. And... Uh, you know, one of your focuses um, I read is that you you research you research focus on public confidence in vaccines, and when we don't know enough about a scientific problem, we look to the the golden bullet, the silver bullet, yeah. and in HIV, and I guess as much as in COVID now, we are looking to the vaccine to save us. So. So what what do you do? Do you try and sort of uh, rope in the over-enthusiasm or, or how does it work? Well, basically what we try to do is listen a lot more to the public um, because one of the problems I think in general with health communication, but particularly with vaccines, it's so driven by you know, the effectiveness of the vaccine, the safety, the cost, but it doesn't take into account what people want necessarily. It's what the health authorities and the scientists think are good for humanity, and it's all well-intentioned, but most people have a lot of other things they're worried about or concerned about or care about, uh, and those those considerations are have not typically been kind of in the bucket of data being considered. 
so we try to listen to what is the public thinking, feeling. Feeling is a big thing. I'm just launching a Lancet Commission on the emotional determinants of health because we see the power of feeling and sentiment as influencing um, and not being kind of separate from rational thinking. So we're trying to get our finger on the pulse of what the public is feeling to help inform the kind of outreach and engagement strategies and influence people's confidence because we care about what they think. So that is a very interesting way of uh, putting the cart almost with the horse at the same time. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And I suppose what must have been on your mind a lot pre-COVID was the anxiety and opposition to the MMR vaccines and this um, uh, fake news that it caused autism. And um, I, you came out with a book in 2015, this, uh, The State of Vaccine Confidence. Um, and, and, you know, and I remember reading it and thinking sort of three key things coming out of it, this this innate skepticism of science, which particularly in the United States is something, and you really see it at the moment um, with COVID and with HIV, that is something that the African-American community in particular feels very strongly. Um, th then there is this sort of, you know, as we have this overwhelming um, availability of data, some good, some not good, through social and digital media. Um, let's uh, let's say amateur scientists deciding that there is a link yeah. between the MMR vaccine and um, and autism, and and then you also see this extraordinary politicization of science um, that that divides and. Um, mm. I, I guess back then in 2015, it's it's sort of dealing with the um, how shall I put this the niche your own yogurt people up in Marin County, north of yeah. <laughs> San Francisco, yes. who are you know at the heart of this movement to oppose the um, MMR vaccine, really at great cost to the lives yeah. of their children and their friends' children. And so, I, I mean, how do you how do you see the features of um, uh, of building vaccine confidence? Where where are the battles to be fought? Well, one thing I often say is, I think we have less of a misinformation problem and more of a relationship problem. Uh, we can go try to debunk uh, and fix facts. Um, but if we're not dealing with the underlying sentiments that are driving belief in that information or misinformation, we're never going to fix this or, or try to repair it. So I think that um, we, in looking at what's underneath and driving it, one thing about vaccines is they touch every single life on the planet, and they're intimately tied to government and government decision making, to big business, um, and to and science, which is to many people kind of elitist. So all the things that, in a societal way, that anybody who has an issue with vaccines are the perfect platform to express their grievances, their disgruntledness about whatever the issue is. Uh, so it's a 
they've become particularly vulnerable to these issues. So I think starting to, uh, and they feel left, pe people feel left out of the decision-making around vaccines that they have to take. So I think any effort we can make to involve people uh, to listen to their concerns with, with the whole framing of pro and anti-vaccine, we're pushing out the 80% of the people in the middle who are genuinely concerned moms and, and caregivers who might have some very reasonable questions. And by dividing the world, these, these parents have told me, we feel demonized. Yeah. We can't even ask a question without feeling like, you know, we're not respecting the system. So, so you could say there's a, there, there are some lessons to be learned from HIV in the way that scientists, I was going to say they reached out to communities, but in fact, in, in the case of HIV, it was communities knocking down the doors of the scientists to say, get us a seat to the, at the table. Explain this in a way that makes sense to me. Explain this in a way that enables me to be a supporter. And um, would it be fair to say that perhaps in the vaccine movement, um, you know, we've, we've thought that that hasn't been necessary, that it should be obvious to people? I think that the reason that it has become so extreme and these movements have grown is because they haven't been listened to. And the voices got louder and louder and louder. I think it was Martin Luther King said that a riot is an ex a way to express the voices of the unheard. Um, I mean, you know, we've, we've kept the questions and the sentiments in a pressure cooker that has now gone to an extreme, um, we kind of hit a tipping point thing. So I think it's very relevant to the AIDS movement in the sense, the public's, I mean, I hear uh, we need to um, get the science, uh, public more engaged with science, a public understanding of science. I don't think so. I think we need a better science understanding of the public um, because, you know, yes. they they are engaged. They are way engaged. They're far more engaged than the science is in terms of, you know, the, the issues. You know, and, and so this reminds me a little bit of my own approach to, to thinking about what to contribute to life. Um, yeah. I... Uh, to my great regret, did not study the sciences. I was useless at maths. I slept through physics. I mean, I literally fell asleep in the physics classroom at my um, Hogwarts school. And um, it wasn't until I was at university that I realized what was passionate, uh, what, what I really was passionate about was... Uh, not simplifying science uh, for the uh, general public, but sort of getting the the scientific community to explain things in ways that made sense and that wasn't about 
how shall I put this, positioning them as the smartest person in the room. And I, I, I think that's yeah. been a great challenge with, the, um, with, with Western medical science, certainly. Mm. So, um, I, you know, I, I, as I've been looking at this era of COVID, what are some of the best ways of getting information out about mask wearing? Well, you'll appreciate this living in the United Kingdom. There's a, a comedian called Jane Godley who has a wonderful Scottish accent and uh, lip syncs whenever the First Minister um, Nicola Sturgeon speaks. And it's all about masks Hi. and wearing masks. And, you know, don't come at me from the Daily Mail if you're going to, you know, tell me how useless it is to wear a mask. Um, and, and then, of course, I also sort of think of, um, you know, really good science fiction writers like Margaret Atwood that really are able to take scientific concepts and describe them in ways that appeal to... You know, she has a, a very large nerdy scientific um, readership, but also a, a readership from people who are in the behavioral sciences and across the world. And so I, I always think of, of, the, of appealing to sort of those ways of trying to, to reach information and provide information about, um, you know, the sort of more difficult scientific concepts. Yeah, I mean, I think that the more we can get a bit of humor and, and literature and storytelling and uh, not to trivialize the science. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's been the problem. The, it, it's been uh, the scientific and, and health community has felt that it's kind of watering down the science to to bring a human face to it um, and that it's just emotional. Um, you don't have to have either emotion or reason. Uh, I mean, frankly, I mean, I, I have uh, a neurologist friend, uh, Corey Brogman, she's um, has a lab in, at Rockefeller University. She said emotions were not meant to make us think; they were yeah. meant to keep us alive. Yeah. And and we underestimate. Uh, there's a fantastic new book also that came out called "How Emotions Are Made," and it's really you know they're learned. It's like you know AI. Our systems get wired. We each have very different emotional wiring depending on how things are learned but that learning is very much our instinctive way to keep us surviving um sometimes it gets a bit messed up somewhere along the way but um but it's really um we need to appreciate that you can bring a human face to to science in a way that's not simplifying it um it, that in fact it's giving it more uh, respect, frankly, yeah. and humanity, and relevance. I yeah. think relevance is another thing. It's not just about simplifying it so that the you know uneducated masses understand it. It's about making it relevant to their lives. Yeah, and bringing out the humanity of that. I like I, I like that very much. Now, Heidi, you've got another book, uh, literally literally coming hot off the presses. It's called Stuck, and it's about why vaccine rumours start and why they don't go away. This could not be a better time for such a yes. book. Can you tell us a bit about it, what we should expect? Well, 
the book actually has, uh, even though it's it's landed on fertile ground, as as it were, um, it's a book that I've been working on for longer than I want to think about. Um, but it's also, uh, I was concerned it wasn't getting out while the issue was still uh, live, but it's even become more relevant. But it's really about those underlying drivers of not just what triggers rumors, but what keeps them alive and why we need to get to the root of it. Um, there's a, uh, even though it was moving from the editorial desk to the production uh, table, the the editors did uh, agree with me that a prologue on COVID was really important because the book is so relevant to the current situation. And I wrote a 1700 word prologue that positioned why these chapters had relevance to COVID. And the chapters are on, on rumor and the characteristics of rumor and why actually uh, they're they're a social function. People people share and learn, and actually there are rumor archives in WHO that were kept to detect uh, smallpox outbreaks and in AIDS too. I mean, anytime there's a new disease outbreak, rumors are information, and that's another risk of just trying to you know delete rumors and and unverified information because you may need it. So there's a chapter on on how I think about rumors. There's a chapter on dignity and distrust, which I think are some of the deeper sentiments uh, driving or discouraging people from vaccines. They feel like their dig- dignity is not respected, and they they're not. There's no mutual trust. Uh, there's a chapter on risk and the fact that it's not just. I mean, there tends to be you know, a scientific risk versus benefit. Well, there are many risk perceptions that people have, and it's much more about how the risk situates itself. And and when doctors always talk about the risk, assuming the risk of the disease, the parents thinking about the risk of the vaccine versus the disease. So there's the consideration of risk. I talk about the volatility of public opinion. 10 years ago, you did a report on public attitudes and you know you could keep that report on your shelf for a couple years maybe and it would be pretty stable now it's like political opinion polling what do you think about vaccines yeah. well i'll tell you now but you better ask me again in a couple weeks cuz it'll change and then i talk about the power of beliefs and emotional contagion yeah well i certainly on that last one emotional contagion you look at the two countries that we're sitting in, the United States and the United Kingdom, and we are, we've uh, we've had a contagion of uh, emotional responses that have either been bleak denial or um, the creation of uh, stories that that you know, after a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, don't don't hang up i mean you know britain was going to jolly well see this through with herd immunity and um the united states had that wonder drug hydrochloric hydrochloric hydrochloroquine um 
which uh, the FDA finally removed, but which is still being bandied about uh, in some quarters mm-hmm. as, a, as a miracle cure, even as a, a, um, a, a miracle prophylaxis. And, and, and so I wonder for, for, for you, what, what is the big relevance for COVID now? What, what should we be doing? Every experience that the public has had around the way the government has handled the response is going to affect their trust and their willingness to take a vaccine. How they handled lockdown, how they handled whether it's mask wearing. Um, If the public feels like they've been giving confused and mixed messages, why should they believe them around a vaccine? So I think every, every step of the way we need to be thinking about trust building um, before we even have a vaccine. And the whole notion of warped speed or warp speed yeah. or, you know, let's get this vaccine fast. Well, that may seem good to scientists and politicians, but I'll tell you, the public does not want a vaccine that's been made too fast. And because the sentiment is, and it's the most common sentiment across all our social media analysis, is too fast, not safe, can't be safe. Um, and I, I think that, you know, they're not, they're not just crazy people. I mean, they're using some common sense to say, well, how can you know it's safe if you're turning it around so fast? So I think we have to do a better job of explaining why these vaccines uh that they're talking about the candidate vaccines can be made uh, more quickly than the previous ones. It's partly because there are different technologies. It's not just because it's a shorter period of time to try to do the same thing that other vaccines, but we don't, we don't put in that part. We just go for the speediness. Yeah. I, I, I'm I'm feeling less confident, honestly, about the world's response to to COVID than maybe even a month ago. And one of the things that's really worrying me, and so I'm hoping you're going to reassure me here, Heidi, no pressure at all, um, <laughs> is the <clears throat> the vaccine as our saviour. You know, we're talking, oh, maybe we'll get a first vaccine in October 2020. Well, that's nonsense. But maybe halfway into 2021, we will have a vaccine and we may well do so. But there will be pluses and minuses. There will be strengths and there will be weaknesses and we will need a range of vaccines. And it worries me that we are buying into a sense of um, sort of hopeless optimism that we've got to have the vaccine in order to return to the lives that we knew before pre-COVID. And I think the job of people like you and people like me is to, is really to start a discourse to say, this is what we know about how we feel about vaccines. This is actually what the science is saying. And we have to join these dots. We have to create a narrative that is Um, optimistic, but is realistic. Well, I think the whole uh, reflecting back on the AIDS vaccine, if we had waited to change behaviors for an AIDS vaccine, I think we would be in in much worse shape with HIV now. I mean, we, we need to deal with real life now 
Um, and I think with the COVID vaccine, we don't know um, whether we're going to have a vaccine. Um, I think there's a very good chance that we'll have multiple ones. But in the meanwhile, it's definitely not going to happen before the end of the year in terms of publicly available. Um, and, you know, a lot of people can die between now and then. And we just need to do better. And and then once we have a vaccine, we have uh, a huge global challenge, which we've not really succeeded on in the past, of broad, affordable accessibility for a global population of, what are we, six to eight billion? Too many. Now. Too many, <laughs> yes. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. Yes. So, so to cheer us up a bit, here's a th here's a thought as we come to the end of the of the interview. Um, you and I worked together. You at WHO and you at, and I at UNAIDS way way back or twenty years ago on this most extraordinary, bizarre advocacy event in the industrial town of Winterthur in um, central Switzerland. And we were all put in coaches and sent to stay in military barracks. Now, I don't know if you remember this. Yes. And I have, I'm having a memory, a memory loss here. It's happening more and more. And so my question to you is, did I spill my breakfast over me one morning or was it you? Oh boy, there goes my memory. <laughs> I think it was me. I think it was me. I, yeah, I'm afraid so, as they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was the yeah. most surreal thing. And there we were driving to these sort of evil James Bond castle events, sort of sitting in the back of coaches going, what in God's name are we doing? But um, <laughs> that's, that's my f first very firm and warm recollection of working with you. So... At least we had each other. We had each Keep other. Each other. We had Andy Seal and each and, other. And motivated. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I managed to yes. get a pair of clean clothes. Um, yes. So, so how are you staying sane and optimistic in this period of of time? What's your What's your escape route? Well, just in terms of the positive outlook on the work front, I uh, one great thing about being. <laughs> professor and teacher in, in a university is I have this a fantastic group of inspired, motivated, thinking young people. And um, I also see a, a generation of the children of mothers who were refusing vaccines saying, whoa, wait a minute, I don't think I agree with this. So I see a very interesting uh, generational dynamic here that gives me great hope. At the end of the day, or whenever I try to step back from all the COVID uh, um, contagion, I uh, love cooking. We love cooking at home. I read. I I love photography, although I can't go very far in this environment right now. I've been taking a lot of pictures of um, environmental indicators of COVID because I think this is a time that we should document. So I'm looking at things in, in the neighborhood as far as I can go to capture that, to not forget it. And any Netflix, net, Netflix binge watching? Yeah, only detective series. 
<laughs> that that wins the prize in this house. Yeah. yeah, at the moment, the prize in this house is an absolutely extraordinary game of crazy golf. So uh, huh. a, an American competition called Holy Moly. So that's that's what's keeping us sane at the moment. Well, whatever works, whatever works, I think it's right? Important. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so Heidi, thank you so much. The book Stuck should be out on the shelves and out on the various online book selling websites, and I strongly recommend it. And I hope that maybe we can get back together later in the year and just take stock of how. Uh, the world is uh, taking these lessons to heart and preparing itself for for the long haul of a pandemic. And hopefully getting unstuck. And getting unstuck. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yes. laughs> Great. Well, thank Thanks. you so much for being on the show. A pleasure. <laughs> so well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much to Professor Heidi Larson. Thanks also to our producer and director, Erica Spera of NewsDoc Media. And finally, a big thanks to you. As always, you can find us on YouTube, Twitter and Facebook at Shot Arm Podcast. And you can download this and every episode wherever you download your podcasts. So have a great week. Have a safe week. And don't forget, don't forget to wear your mask.